Hey there, Chip Close here, host of the Restaurant Strategy Podcast. Did you know that I wrote a book? And that book is coming out October 3rd, 2023. Right now it's September 2023, and we're running a special pre-launch offering. It's a pre-launch package for the first 200 people who order a copy of this book directly from me. Go to the Restaurant Marketing Mindset. Dot com. The first 200 people get a copy of the book signed. You get it a week in advance of everyone else. Shh. You also get a special restaurant strategy, uh, strategy tote, and you also get an invitation to a launch day celebration. This is a special two-hour Q&A session with me on October 3rd. That's when the book really gets released. Uh, I appreciate having you guys here every single week. I've been doing this show for the last four and a half years. Hopefully, I provided you value, and if you could do this one thing for me, I would be eternally grateful. Again, it's a special package available only to the first 200 people who order the book. A handful of them gone because I have already gone because I reached out to my uh, mastermind group first. There are still some copies left, but you got to jump on it now. Again, go to the restaurantmarketingmindset.com, get your special pre-launch package of the book. You'll get an advanced signed copy of this book and make sure to come back. Your own Goldman is my guest today. He is the CEO of Finally Restaurant Group. We're talking about so much, including his trajectory, their specific plan for customer retention at his company. There's some really great nuggets in there. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Hey there, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable business. Each week, I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more uh, sustainable restaurant. I also work directly with owners and operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. This is something that works. Uh, We're working with over 100 people right now spread across three different groups. Tell me if you struggle generating consistent, predictable 20% profits, then get in touch. Set up a free call with someone from my team. We'll learn about you and your restaurant. You'll ask some questions about the program. Let's see if you're a good fit. You schedule that call by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. That link is in the show notes. That call is totally free. Now, thousands of restaurants across the country use Kickfin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem because let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift is kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft. And guess what? There's never enough cash on hand to pay out those tips, so managers are constantly making bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet Kickfin. Kickfin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time, cashless, tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with Kickfin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And guess what? Employees love it, so it's one of the best recruiting tools out there. Best of all, restaurants can have Kickfin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds, no hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. 
Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com slash demo. And yes, that link is in the show notes. Now, as I said at the top, my guest on today's show is a guy named Yaron Goldman. He is the CEO of Finally Restaurant Group based out in uh, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, and beyond. They are growing, but they're sort of a, a midsize uh, restaurant group that's growing in a very specific way. We talk about so much, or I'd like to get into so much on this conversation, talk about a little bit about Yaron's uh, background, what brought him to hospitality, and specifically the retention, uh, the customer retention techniques that they're using. But before we do that, we got to welcome him to the show, Yaron. It's good to have you. Thanks, Chip. I appreciate you having me on today. This is uh, this is gonna be a fun little hour here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. So, uh, start at the beginning. Um, talk to me about your sort of trajectory and and getting into the industry and then into the role that you're in now. Take us back as far as you need to and give us some context. Yeah, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version um, because, like many people in the, in this industry, they have a long story that has a lot of twists and turns. But uh, started working at a uh, concept called McAllister's Deli when I was uh, in college at University of Alabama, and was a uh, sandwich maker there, making minimum wage, and uh, graduated college and had a, a finance degree and was going to go work for a bank uh, in New York or or uh, North Carolina, or one of the big hubs for finance. And then they uh, offered me a position to be a manager. And I was like, oh, this would be fun. I'll do this for another year. I really enjoyed it. And then just fell in love with it. And then uh, became a franchisee of McAllister's um, with uh, some partners, built the brand up over um, 75 units over uh, 10, 12 years, um, then divested some of that, then got into other brands, QSR, other fast casual, and uh, did that all the way till uh, 2020, then divested that um, completely and uh, after COVID and all the all the challenges that COVID uh, uh, posed to most people. And then, you know, got into casual dining now with uh, finally restaurant group, Ribbon Chop House. We have two other brands as well, um, TJ Ribs, which is a casual dining sports bar barbecue concept out of uh, Louisiana, and then Rio Sabinas, which is a casual dining Mexican restaurant based in Montana. But the the majority of our business is this ribbon chop house. It's polished fat. It's polished casual dining. Um, it's one of the few places you can go in America and get a fifteen dollar chicken dinner plate and also a ninety dollar wagyu steak, and it works. And it's uh, it's an unbelievable brand. We have unbelievable loyalty and uh, customer following, and uh, very very exciting brand to be a part of. And been with it. It'll be three years next month and just having a blast doing it. A lot, a lot of fun. A lot of challenges in the past three years in this environment, but a ton of yeah. fun and able to do a lot of different things that you normally wouldn't be able to try. And I want to get into the some of the challenges. And I think, you know, uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of all invention that, that breeds yeah. new solutions and things like that. So I want to get your take on that. But I want to go back again because, uh, like you said, everyone's got twists and turns. And I want to, I want to just talk about some of them if we can. So yeah. you were going to go work on Wall Street, and you thought, that okay, that was my trajectory, but you started working a sandwich shop, you start managing a sandwich yeah. shop. So what exactly did you fall in love with at that point? Because that, that's a, those are two very different trajectories that, you've, uh, that you were looking at. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's similar for other people, but for me, I just love the people I was working with. And also, um, you know, I was one to have a lot of fun in college, and it was basically like a an ex I graduated, but I had an extra year of college with no responsibilities. I mean, to me, the managing was the easiest thing in the world. You leave, and you don't have to take your work home with you. And in those days, you could staff a restaurant like nothing. And uh, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I just had 
And it was like another year, it was basically another year of college and going to football games and, you know, other than the work, but um, there was no homework and there was no chess. Yeah. <laughs> you just did the work and it was just all my friends didn't graduate in four years. So they were there still. I mean, I know it sounds like the stupidest reason, but it was just like, it was no. going to be fun. Now I was 22. I was like, this will be great. And I'll do one year of this and then I'll get back to my real life. And my dad was even like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm just having one more year before I start my real career. And then, um, and they started franchising and said, Hey, do you want to be a franchisee? And I really didn't have any money. So me and my, my, the two other managers, basically they, they put us in touch with an angel investor. He funded us. And, uh, we had a group of about nine people, uh, in the original deal. And then, um, over the years I was able to buy people out, uh, learned how to use, uh, leverage for good or for bad, but learned how to use le- leverage, learned how to scale, did a lo- bunch of M and a, did a bunch of acquisitions, new builds. We built 50 units. We bought 40 units. We sold 30 units. I mean, we did all kinds of things. So I feel like, I feel like I've been kind of through the ringer, like I said, good, bad, and ugly, um, in this industry, but just fell in love with it. And I love the business part and the finance part. And that's the thing about this business. You can do all of that. And, yeah. you know, last week I'm in a restaurant and on Thursday night at nine o'clock working with the guys, helping them, you know, take out the trash and talk about what specials are working or what or what aren't. And so I just that's what I love about this industry is you can you can deal with all different people from all different uh, walks of life. And everyone understands our business because everyone eats and everyone eats out. And everyone's right. got an opinion, right? So And everyone's uh, got an opinion. So yeah, talk to me because exactly. okay, so now so see this is where we start getting to the interesting stuff. Yeah. So what you're talking about is sort of finance and the and the business perspective of it. And it seems like you know, you started working in the store, so within the operations of it. And so the hospitality side and the business side, I think it seemed to many people to be very, very separate. And I particularly love the merging of those together. It was when I when I really understood the business piece of things is when I really started um, enjoying this business, uh, partially because the business is so hard, right? The, the business aspect of it, the, the profitability aspect of it. But that was the thing that really, um, that really sparked my interest. So when you're talking about this, that sounds really interesting to me. But when you're talking about sort of franchising and buying people out and, you know, 50 builds and 40 purchases and 30 things, that sounds like something very different than what I think most people end up doing when they get into here. So talk to me about balancing those two sides or how you thought about balancing the hospitality, making sure the food is good, we take care of people, we're, we're putting out products that people like, creating environments that people want to be in. And then this other thing of how you how you balance those two, this other thing of like, we found it, let's grow it, we know it works, this is how we use leverage to, uh, to grow this brand, et cetera, et cetera. Talk to me about those two things. Yeah, so um, for me, when we when we started we built um so i uh was a manager i'll give you the background and you stop me if i'm talking too much or too much no i love this but uh you know became a manager then they said hey do you guys want to be franchisees and and we were connected with some money people that worked out so we bought the market for north carolina or charlotte north carolina just charlotte and we basically said we're going to go in and build five units and and just see where we go from there um and we built our third one and after our third one we basically figured out now again we're we're franchisees so for when you're a franchisee and as everyone knows you don't have to worry about the menu development you don't have to worry about supply chain you don't have to worry about marketing all you have to do is execute so we basically uh distilled it down to we just find the real estate find the money to build the location 
you know, we need four managers and 30 people, and we can build as many of these as we want. And I know that sounds really simple, but it is. It was really that simple. And again, this is an environment in early 2000s where finding people wasn't the chaos it is today, right? right. I mean, completely different world, right? Agreed. But in those days, it was not, and Charlotte's a growing market. So we went and just said, everyone, we kind of gave everyone in um, the company a role, and I had one guy work for me who was started out as an assistant manager, became a general manager, and he was able to run the op side. And once I handed it him, he was doing better than I was doing. And I said, hey, you're performing better, so you're better at this, you do that, I'll go find new deals and grow the company. And uh, and that was, that's what we did. And we started looking, you know, we our first acquisition was in June of 2004. Um, the same day I met my wife was the day we closed on that restaurant, which is ironic. That's I know funny. Great, June 14th, <laughs> which is uh, kind of funny, separate now. But, uh, uh, we did that location, so we did one, and we figured out how it works, and that first one was really hard because if you've never bought or sold a restaurant, there's just so many things to go into. It's not like a house. There's just, I mean, there's a lot of similarities, but there's not. And when you're 20, you know, 27, 28, you're young, you've never done it, you get all nervous about everything, and then you do like 10 of those transactions, you know, like the back of your hand, you understand all the different aspects, you have great legal, legal help, and you do it, and it's fun, and closing deals are fun, and I'm a deal junkie, and I love buying and selling and retrading and, uh, and negotiating leases, negotiating out of leases and into leases. And, you know, all of those things are fun if you can have a solid operation. We always did. Uh, I mean, in our business, other than 08 and 09 during the recession, we always had positive same-store sales. Um, we didn't always have positive transaction counts, but generally we did, but always had positive same-store sales. And if you do that, you're very attractive to landlords and lenders and investors and all of the different things that go along with that. So that's basically how, how we got to that point. And um, it's a skill set I developed and I worked on. I mean, during that time, I also went back and got my MBA um, at night because um, I wanted that skill set as well. And uh, really, really, just like I said, enjoy the business. But I also enjoy the fact that every once in a while, you know, in my current role, I'll go in on a Friday night and cook steaks for four hours. I love that too. As much as anything else, I love doing that, right? I love serving people. I love talking to guests. And more importantly, I love talking to employees. You just find so much out um, when you talk to employees and find out what's working and what's not. Now I'm on the brand side. So I'm responsible for making menu development, marketing, and all of those things are right. And I have a completely new respect for the franchisor side when I used to beat them up as a franchisee saying, why can't you guys just do this? Now I'm on that brand side. It's so much harder than I ever thought. Uh, it's not impossible when we were doing it, but there was there's just a lot more challenges than I think I ever really appreciated. Um, so, so, so talk to me about so that. that. Dig into a little bit. I think that'll be a nice yeah. little um, stepping stone into what you're doing now. But but talk to me about some of the biggest differences. What struck you when you then became, you know, on the corporate side? Yeah. So um, from the corporate side versus the franchisee side, when you're a franchisee, you're paying your fees. Um, and rightfully so. You just expect that hey, X, Y and Z are done. Right. Um, yep. And when they don't get, get done quickly, there is this kind of like, I don't understand why you guys can't do that. We're paying. You know, why can't you do that? And then you when you're watching when now you're being a part of it and you realize how many things have to happen for the smallest menu change or small supply chain, or you can't, you know, if a supplier runs out of something in the supply chain, one ingredient that affects nine other things. And as a franchisee, you're saying, I don't really care because I'm paying my 5% every week come hell or high water. So I expect you to do that, right? That's right. And, and it's not, I don't know, that's necessarily the wrong approach, but I also think, I, I know for a fact, for me personally, I don't think I had the full 
appreciation for how hard some of that work was. And I learned that really quickly. Um, I actually spoke to some people who worked for the franchisor later. And I said, I got to say, I didn't realize how hard some of this was. And I got to tell you, I appreciate all the work you guys did. And I always did. But I don't think I had, you know, it's like walking another person's shoes type thing. And I don't think perspective is a really perspective is a powerful thing. It's the most powerful thing. And I think that is one of the best things I've learned is to have, have that perspective. So in, in my future endeavors, I think I'll have that. And because uh, I always had the perspective of the store managers and hourlies, that never lo- was lost on me because I started out like that. So I totally understood their challenges, respected the fact that sometimes they had to come in late because they had childcare, you know, or, or uh, you know, wanted extra hours or couldn't work a weekend. I, like all of that, I totally understood. But the brand side, I got to say, I didn't until now. Uh, not that I didn't understand it, but I don't think I have the empathy that I should have. And uh, I do now, and I'm I'm very I'm happy for that. I'm happy for that um, perspective. Yeah, it's funny. This is what I often say to my clients. So uh, I'm a restaurant coach. In addition to hosting the podcast, that's what I do. And I work with operators from all over the world. And one of the biggest things I tell them is I said, you know, because they invariably ask, well, why should I come join you? I said, there are many reasons. I said, but one of the biggest things, and we're going to talk about it um, not not as much as we should, but perspective. I said, I'm, I've got, I work with, you know, at any given day, you know, right now I've got over 100 people in currently in the program, you know, enrolled across three different groups. That's a lot of different people I get to meet with and talk to. It's a lot of different P&Ls I look at. It's a yeah. lot of different problems I face. You know, in addition to the hundreds and hundreds that I've worked with over the last, over my career, so that's perspective. And sometimes you lose sight of the forest for the trees. Um, you don't get that. But just being able to, you know, have somebody see uh, from a different direction uh, can sometimes be helpful. And that's the, that's the power of experience, right? It's like the longer you do this, the, the, the more you see, the, the more you go through and, um, that ends up shading and shaping um, the way that you uh, approach business. And that's part of perspective for sure. No, it totally is experience and perspective. Like it, it, they can change because, you know, when you're younger, you think you know everything and, you know, you can do everything. <laughs> and then you, uh, and you get, uh, you, you, you know, you, uh, you figure out real fast. Other people have different ideas sometimes. So you got to work yeah. with that. And well, that's funny because you said. You said you went back to uh, back to business school. I went back and got my MBA uh, just a few years back. And when I went through the programs, it was an MBA in food marketing, which was in perfect alignment with what I do and what I've been doing. Uh, But I ended up being with a lot of people on the manufacturing side and a lot of people on the CPG and retail side. And so hearing the factory perspective, the retailer's perspective, the distribution perspective, um, that gave me insight into what we do in food service. because I sort of went back to school thinking, I feel like we don't do things right. I feel like there's a there's a righter way to do things. Um, and I yeah. largely, over the course of a couple of years, figured out that I was absolutely right. Um, and by the end of it, I could articulate, you know, why we don't do things right and how we could do things better. But it was listening to people. On, I mean, especially like the CPG side, the way that I uh, went to school with a bunch of people um, who work at uh, who are high up at uh, Campbell's Campbell Soup Company. Like that's place as a machine, but understanding the way they, they think about cost of goods sold and they think about revenue, like their revenue is built in. They start a period understanding what their revenue is because they have X number of orders. They've yeah. got X number of orders to fulfill, so they know how much they're going to get paid. So they only need to order as many as much product to fulfill those orders. They don't have to worry about waste or spillage or sort of, you know, estimating a busy Saturday night and then having a thunderstorm come in and sort of knock your cover counts from 200 to 110. 
you know, they're all things that we that we contend with in our in our industry that they don't. And that gave me a really interesting perspective, a different way to approach the work um, that we do, how we build uh, proper forecasting models with a lot of sort of um, fungibility to them, and um, ultimately how we think uh, differently about profitability. So, uh, I, I appreciate all of that. Talk to me about. So where you're at now, what you do now, what, what are the specific challenges you guys face now with the company, the brands that you oversee in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, so I think like everybody, we're dealing with, you know, um, labor and employees. And I mean, in certain markets, um, it's as challenging as I've ever seen. I mean, we're competing against QSR uh for managers that you know our typical range of managers from kitchen manager to general manager it's gonna be between uh you know 55 60,000 to 90,000 for a more experienced person and we're competing in certain markets for qsr where they're starting managers at $75,000 plus bonus and our skill set's a lot higher than a qsr skill set and that's not um it's not a knock on QSR. It's in QSR for years. It's just a different skill set when you have to manage, um, you know, a five million dollar business where the average ticket's ninety dollars versus you know a twelve dollar ticket where it's just about speed, 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 and execution, and not having to kind of think on your feet as much. Um, so we're ch- that to me is the biggest challenge that everyone's dealing with. But I've never seen it. This it's hard to right size a P and L when your cost of goods and your labor is going high and it's so competitive. Um, and obviously with restaurants, we don't have dynamic pricing, right? So we can set a price and then it's just hard Why don't to change we? it all. Right? Why don't we? We, we should, have, right? We should, but I also think like it, it's easy to say that. And I think maybe, and you know, I've always thought about that. It'd be fun to do like a, uh, like a, uh, a menu with digital uh, prices that change by market and whatever. I think, I think guests would not like that as much as we may think they would. I also think it depends on the type of experience, but you could also make it kind of part of the stick for a certain kind of concept. I think let's, let's let's pause here for a second because yeah. I love this conversation because I, I'm yeah. I'm the king of so um I'm working yeah in any event I'm working on a, yeah. a book that that sort of deals with this among other things. But we always are so quick to say, and I you know there's this joke right? They they have this joke yeah. in advertising. I think it's true in our industry as well, right? Everyone's first in line to go second. Like yeah. it. They just they're like, it sounds like a good idea, but I don't think it's going to work. Where else has it been tested? Um, the customer does it for hotels. The customer yeah. does it for uh, airlines. The yeah. customer does it for Broadway shows. The customer does it for movie tickets. The customer well, I mean, does it in do- a lot of other areas. Well, we do it on some level, right? Because we have market pricing and everyone's used to market pricing for fish of the day. Sure. Or but I'm specifically of talking about night of the week, day of the uh, time of day. So. Yeah. We want people to come in and dine at 5 and 5.30. Everybody wants to dine at 7 o'clock. We need diners at 5 and 5.30. We also need diners at 9.30. So if it meant we discounted a certain right or we charge a premium to dine in the middle of the night, there are restaurants all over. I mean, Alinea has done this for uh, almost 10 years. So Alinea out in Chicago, which super high end, maybe not the best example. But to dine with them on, say, uh, Wednesday night is maybe 250. To dine with them on a Saturday night is 350 or 400. Yeah, you pay a premium because we've got it's a simple demand curve. <laughs> we've got more demand. We've got limited supply on a Saturday night. Yeah. So you're going to pay for that. Why shouldn't we do that? 
Yeah, I guess in some in some ways, I guess the restaurant business and food service hospitality has been doing it for years with happy hours, right? With half sure. off. Sure. You know, this is always the response. Yep. Right. You can do that. I mean, but in in my thought, when I think dynamic pricing, like truly at its core, like the definition of me, would you would be in a going in and have a menu that the prices change like by the market price of the underlying product, which is, I mean, a very granular look at it. If the price of meat goes up by day, oh. then the my steak goes from twenty four ninety nine to thirty one ninety nine, then back to one hundred percent. Yeah, like to do I all that. I think we absolutely. I mean, this is what seafood restaurants have been doing forever, right? MP, yeah. MP, yeah, market exactly. price. How much is the lobster today? Yeah. Let me check. So yeah, I mean, if we and listen, this is something we didn't really think about until this year. Until yeah. all these uh, the cost of goods, you know, went crazy. But exactly what you're saying, I think there's more demand on a Friday and Saturday night. Those tables should be more profitable. I think yeah. there's less demand on a Wednesday. And I think we could probably do something with pricing to entice people to come in not only to our restaurant, but to come out to dine on a yeah. Tuesday, Wednesday, a Thursday. I think that's one uh, part of dynamic pricing. I think the other piece is time of day. Again, yeah. the 530 and 930 tables we need filled. Are we willing to do them at a discount? And the seven o'clock, we've got no problem filling them. And then exactly what you're talking about, right, is that as goods go up and down and we know that people don't, you know, the, the price changes, we get a couple deliveries a week and we're not changing. It's not one price on Tuesday and then we get the new delivery and then we change them for Friday or vice versa. But we probably should because all we're doing is messing with our with our profitability, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And I think like, to go back to your question is what are the challenges in this challenge? It's we, okay. The, we could have the, you can have the discussion. Should we have dynamic pricing and how would that work and all those things for sure. Yep. But in a world, if you don't, that one of our challenges and I had a, a discussion with our distributor, um, you know, now I'm having it almost every day is uh, we, we spec a product. You short us the product, the product you short is 30% more like that doesn't work. Like we're priced, you know, because we don't have dynamic price. Again, going back to should we, can we? Absolutely. Someone can pilot yep. and test it and whatever. And, you know, I think <laughs> if you would do it, it's you do it in Chicago or Miami or L.A. or New York or somewhere where people are, are more uh, early adopters and you can be on the bleeding edge of some of that. I think in Gillette, Wyoming, people are going to go, what the hell are you talking about? I thought the steak sure. was $25, right? I just, yeah. that's why my heart, I believe in, uh, and, uh, you know, in our world, we don't have enough um, scale. Like if we had 150 units, I would do it in a market. We have 15. Sure. Right? sure. So it's like, it's a totally different, um, it's a totally but different there is type a but, but there is root. a conversation for it. So, and you're right. We can talk about whether we should do it. And then if yeah. so, how would we execute that? I think it's a really compelling conversation. I think 10 years from now, it's going to be much more standard than we, than we like, than we, than we can see right now. I also think yeah. that our menus are all going digital and that becomes yeah. then very, very easy because the, mar the, literally the pricing can change. Table 22 can see one set of prices. Table 15 can see another set of prices. Um, that that is coming. It's the same thing when you and I go shop for airlines, right? When you and I are going shopping for the same flight, going that making the same route, yeah. I might see one pricing, you might see another. I might buy at one pricing, and then that changes the pricing that you see. That's yeah, how these systems are built. Yeah, I mean, you're already seeing it. I don't know. Like we were talking earlier um, about United Airlines. I fly United Airlines a ton, and I go through Houston. Um, I'm on my way to Louisiana, and if you go eat at any of the restaurants in the Houston airport. Um, or not any, most I should say. I don't want to say all, but they basically you order from the app and it's um it the pricing is digital and I guarantee they change the pricing all the time. It's all ordered you know online from your phone and whatever. And uh, 
And I, I will say, you know, speaking, I guess we're doing something like that. In one, we have one restaurant that has a hotel attached to it, and we do in-room dining. So in the past, or until now, it will changing next month, hopefully, if we get the IT done. But we just leave a menu in the room, and they call down, and and they um, they uh, order, you know, order a steak and potato and a salad, and they come down, they sign a ticket, and we give it to the front desk. They get charged, and we get reimbursed. And now we're changing that to they're going to order online. We're going to have a QR code. They're going to order from our um, – our POS online system, and it'll say, you know, room 101 or whatever it is, and we'll deliver it to them. And we're going to have different pricing than we do for our restaurant, right? Because we have to pay a fee and all of those things. So um, that'll be interesting to see how that works, right? To me, because that is the future. And I think about it, that's the way you would do it is through the online, the QR code and the digital. But, you know, digital QRs originally were just PDFs of menu, and now they truly are digital. Sure. I mean, QR is just a vehicle to take you to where you want to go. Yeah, exactly. It's a portal to go wherever. You can send them anywhere with it. Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution yet. It's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with the previous ingredients you've heard me mention on the podcast, websites designed with SEO, marketing tools to keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, the patented interactive menu technology. But this new recipe brings automated phone answering, third-party online order aggregation, waitlisting, and more to the table. PopMenu's phone answering technology has your ringing phones covered. With artificial intelligence, the simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can now be handled without pulling a staff member from your in-person hospitality. No more missed reservations, asking for your hours, or missed revenue, and that's just the beginning. You have a passion for food. PopMenu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. That link is in the show notes. It's so interesting because, you know, really what we're talking about when we talk about, you know, um, dynamic pricing. And I'm going to use this to to talk about something else besides dynamic pricing. But dynamic pricing is just acknowledging that there is demand and there is limited supply. On Saturday night, there's a limited supply. There's a ton of demand and we need to maximize that, which is now thinking like a business person. And I think too often we sort of shoot ourselves in the foot because we think like, uh, hospitalitarians, right? We always think of like, how do we take care of people? And we think very, uh, very little or the last person in line is sort of ourselves, right? Is that ourselves as the operators, as the owners. And I really do believe we have to get better at doing that. Here's a, my last yep. example here for dynamic pricing. So we, uh, we live here in New Jersey, just outside of New York City. Uh, we're big soccer fans. Uh, we went to the Red Bulls. We had the great fortune of going to the Red Bulls just the other night on Saturday night. Lionel Messi was in town. Guess what? All the prices on all the food, they're all on video screens. All the prices were about 20% higher than they normally are. And we go to a bunch of games. I know how much yep. a hot dog and a soda costs. All the prices were up about 20% because it's an 18,000-seat stadium. Usually they fit about uh, – usually they'll get about 8,000 people to a game, right, which isn't great. It's not bad. Whatever. Soccer's still growing in this country. All 18,000 seats were sold to go see, uh, to go see Messi play. And they did what I think any good business person would do. They just jacked the prices. Hot dogs instead of being six fifty were seven fifty. You know, a beer was instead of being you know 
$11, it was $13. They just they raised all the prices across the stadium. And who can blame them? It was a huge event that everybody wanted to go to. They were going to drink. They were going to eat. They were going to have a good time. And I guess that's what I want that I want for us. I want to go this one further, though, because one of the things that drives me crazy about this, and we know how mm-hmm. challenging it is to run a profitable restaurant business because we, we have these margins, and as labor goes up, it becomes really, I mean, how do you keep prime below 60% now? I mean, used to be 55%. Now 60 is a challenge. So yeah. how do we untether ourselves? And this is probably a deeper conversation that I'm really interested in. How do we untether ourselves from these margins, right? We look at other brands, other industries um, that don't have these 5, 10, 15% profit margins, right? 10%, at least the way I was raised in fine dining, was like the promised land. Unicorns, fairies, leprechauns, that's where, that's where they danced. Which is fine if you got an $18 million restaurant, uh, you know, to make you know, 8, 9, 10% on that, it's still a good living. Um, but there are plenty of restaurants. I mean, what they, what, Toast put it out, the NRA put it out, the average independent operator in this country doesn't make more than about 6 or 7% profit margin. Right. And of course, that's taking in some who make 15, 20, 25, some who operated a 8% loss for six months and then decide to close their restaurant. So the numbers are really hard. How do we untether yeah. ourselves from those margins and how do we charge how do how do we charge more for the experiences we provide? Because people love what we do. They keep coming back to us. It, talk to me about that threshold and and how we remove ourselves from these margins. Well, I my personal thought is that it gets changed by technology, right? I mean, the biggest problem we have right now is the labor model more than anything. I mean, there are multiple states where servers, we'll talk about casual dining, right? I think in yep. fast casual USR, you can really leverage technology and you can Agreed. limit staff and hours and drive through and all that stuff. But in casual, polished casual, fine dining, there's only so much you can do. And to me, um, the minimum $9, $10 minimum wage for servers plus tips is is killing this part of the business it really is and you just you you see it happening so to me it's like how do you how do you leverage technology to to solve some of this so that is you know from everything from having the most efficient uh you know dishwashing machine to uh for us i'll just use us you know obviously as examples for you know can we get a um can we get a grill that can cook the steaks faster turn tables faster for us, it's everything is about turning tables, right? And the difference between turning tables at 52 minutes and an hour and three minutes, it can be a 20% change in sales, right? So yep. to me, it's leveraging technology because there's a there's only so much you can raise prices. I mean, people will just they'll go they'll go to they'll say a steak's a steak and go get a choice steak as opposed to CAB or CAB instead of a prime. They can only do you can only do so much. So I think it's technology. Um, how you, how you, how do you leverage technology? Everything from you know QR codes is a small part. I think it's equipment, it's equipment management, it's how do you uh, cook food faster? And even in fine dining, you still need to turn tables, right? Or you need to push that extra bottle of wine or whatever it may be. And to me, that's the challenge. I see the technology that can help, and I see in the restaurants we've tested uh, new technology that um, equipment that can speed up service. We've seen the tables turn, we've seen the sales go up. So I know that works. So to me, that's the way you you do it. But again, for small independents, when you say, hey, per location, and if you only have one location, you need to spend, you know, 200,000, 300,000 on new equipment. That's like the difference between, you know, staying open and not, they can't, they just yep. can't. And, yep. uh, and then that's part of the problem. So I think, and like, unfortunately, like in a lot of in different industries in this country, you know, the big will swallow the small, right? And then companies like us who are kind of in the middle, 
know, where do we go? We either, you know, the next five years, we either make it or break it by figuring this out so we compete with the larger guys that, um, you know, you look at, I will, I'll just, I won't say names because um, I, I don't want to look like a knock, it's just the truth. Larger steakhouse chains that are all across the country that are ubiquitous and everyone knows their name is uh, our use frozen steak programs, right? So use frozen steak, they buy at the trough of the market and they buy millions and millions of pounds so they can always sell their steak for 35% less than us. The quality yep. is clearly different and not nearly as good, but at the end of the day, someone's like, hey, I can go feed a family for four for $80 or $90 versus 200. You know, we don't really care. It's still a steak and I got my, you know, got my sauces and my sides and I'm feeling good about it. So there is going to be that challenge of how we all compete. Um, but hopefully also, I think the cost of goods will right size itself as well. I, I think that I, usually happen. And and there's a there's a feeling every time cost of goods are really high, they'll never come down again. But it seems to always, you know, come so, down eventually. I, Sorry, and I, I agree with you. No, Sorry. it's great. I agree. It's great. And I think everything you said is right. And I think it still drives me crazy because <laughs> yeah. what we're doing is now we're talking about st- we continue to talk about incremental sales. We talk about I- incremental margins. We're talking about how we squeeze out a couple of more percentage points to the bottom line. And I guess that's what that's what bothers me, because as hard as we work, as as core as we are to the communities that we serve as, as our restaurants, whether we're small, small, medium or big, um, it, it just it, it frustrates me that we're still stuck in this in this game. When we talk about the big guys, right, that becomes a race to the bottom. That's a and we, we can't we can't compete. We can't compete with the big guys. We're never going to get the leverage because we don't have the purchasing power and all of that. You, I'm sure, struggle again competing with the big guys for those same reasons. And so, when you look at an independent, they can't do yeah. that. They can't do that at all. And largely, I guess, my perspective on this is that we should be sort of like running the opposite direction. Well, if the big guys are just going to be big and cheap and uh, you know poor, lower quality, let's say, well, then let's just do really great quality, even at a lower level. I'm not even talking about fine dining, but let's yeah. just do better quality, better experience, and we have to charge, and we have to then charge for it. And let them people make their make the decisions. I guess that's where I come from, and I just don't. Otherwise, I don't see I don't see any way around it. Like you said, you know, to for an independent to put in quarter million dollars of new equipment that can help, uh, you know, increase their table turn times by eleven minutes. Um, it's just not it's just not realistic. I, I couldn't have that conversation. I don't know. I don't know anybody who would who would do that. Yeah, no, I and that's that's one of the challenges. And, and this is just, you know, my opinion, right? Um, but yeah, if you say like higher quality one out over time, that's true. But then you have to have the um, balance sheet and the um, the the mental toughness to withstand the first six, eight months of eating higher costs and saying, yeah, we have higher quality and people not really caring or knowing. And then you have to message that, right? And sure. how many independents have great marketing? to really tell people other than your servers go, you know, this is prime versus choice versus select versus yep. CAB, versus, you know, uh, whatever it may be, or, you know, this is fresh fish versus, um, you know, wild ver- uh, caught versus farm raised or whatever it may, may be. Mm-hmm. And you can't communicate that well. It's it's you, then you just spent the money for no reason. Right. I, and I know I we totally agree. And we we're challenged with that, and we have a decent marketing budget and a and, and a third party marketing firm we use, and we have you know a lot of the tools that you know we we punch above our weight on that end, and and but we still struggle. It is a it is a constant so, struggle. So when I think about independence doing that, it's really difficult, but definitely it's doable. But it's just a lot of work. And then you go, is it worth it for someone making eight percent? I mean, you get to the point, come people are like, you know, hundred hours a week for eight percent versus seven percent. I mean, 
that People now that's now. Yeah. now this is where now this is where we should should have probably started the conversation. For me, it drives me crazy that an owner or an operator will spend 60, 70, 80, 100 hours a week in a place. And the average restaurant in this country makes between one point two and one point five million dollars a year. Right. So that's give or take about one hundred thousand dollars in revenue. And you're going to take yeah. home eight percent of that. Right. Split between two or three partners. It's like that. that's a lot. Right. So if if you got two partners in a place, right, and you're taking home 8% of 100K, so you're each taking home $4,000. Like, I promise you, your bartender's making more than you are. I promise you, your best servers are making more than you are. I'm guessing probably even your uh, your grill guy, right, your, your highest paid cook, your grill guy, is probably making more than you. So that's where I come from this. I'm like, it's just too hard, and it's just not it's just not worth it for me. Like, the return you get for the, the amount of work... Um, you know, we could take that investment, put it in just a just an S and P five hundred index fund, and see uh, and see about the the same return at the end of the year. And so, for me, we've got to come up with a it's that opportunity cost, right? We got to come up with a compelling reason to do this. And I think the compelling reason is can can we beat the can we beat the average? Can we get a, a reasonable return? I want to use this conversation to then start going into what you're doing now. Right. Yeah. And I want to because we were talking about marketing and that's specifically where I want to dig a little bit deeper in here. But you said, hey, you guys punch above your weight. You work with an outside firm. How do you think about marketing? Because you said a lot of the things that I fully believe, like if you're going to enter a market, you have to understand why you belong in a market. Um, you've yeah. got to create a reason to exist. So why should I come to your place as opposed to any of the other places? How do you think about that? How do you answer that specific question? So um, broadly and from, uh, you know, I'll talk to each market kind of from a 30,000 uh, foot view or our market. So we're in smaller markets, generally 50 to 100,000 people are our DMAs. I mean, we're in Gillette, Wyoming, Butte, uh, Montana, uh, Billings, Montana, St. George, Utah, some smaller markets generally. Colorado Springs, Colorado is our largest market. Okay, that's like big time for us. Um, and you know, we're in Cheyenne, uh, Sheridan, Casper. So those are the type of markets we're in. And the positive of those is you can have a large impact in your community with uh, charitable uh, organizations, uh, with uh, earned media, and a lot of uh, different things of that nature. And you know, plus that you do traditional media on top of that and social media, you can drive business very quickly like that. So that's a positive, and we can have a high, large impact on that. So what we, the other thing is our menu, like I told you at the beginning. We have, a, we have an interesting menu, and nationally it probably wouldn't work, but we have a menu where you can come in, husband and wife, celebrate your 10-year anniversary, and spend $400, in, you know, a bottle of wine, two Wagyu steaks, um, really nice uh, crab stuffed mushroom appetizer, and feel like it, it was like one of the nicest restaurants in town. And then, you know, five tables away, you're going to have uh, four couples with their six kids, having chicken fingers and tenders and burgers and everyone feels totally comfortable. It's a very weird vibe like that. And not weird in a negative way, obviously, but we're very, uh, we're um, approachable is the like word we like to use. So in these small towns, we're kind of everything to everyone. That's why if we went to Dallas or Houston or, or Denver or Chicago, people would be confused. When we went to Colorado Springs, the first thing people ask us is, what are you? I don't understand this menu, right? But in smaller towns, they get it. They're like, they're here for us, that we're we are there for them, every one of their needs. If they want to come in for a nice brunch on a weekend, we got it. We got a fancy dinner, business meeting, you know, the boss comes to town, you want to show them around, but just want to bring your kids to watch the ball game. We have 30 TVs in each location. So it's just, it's a very 
um, unique concept from that standpoint. So that's part of our marketing as well. And then really specifically, when you get granular on each location, we, you know, we're in Laramie, Wyoming. We have the coaches show for University of Wyoming in our restaurant. We sponsor the, you know, University of Wyoming. And in those towns, there's a lot of affinity and brand equity with the universities because that is the thing, right? So we do a lot of that. In Cheyenne, they don't have a university or a team, but they have Frontier Days, which if you're familiar with, is the largest rodeo in the world. Um, it's been going on for over 100 years, and we sponsor that. And we'll, the sales we do there would rival, during those 10 days, rival any restaurant in New York, I can guarantee you. It's unbelievable. I mean, during those 10 days, you cannot, we, we only stop selling because we cannot keep up. We're yeah. cutting the. There's no way we could do, we could sell as long as we wanted to um, during that time period. So those are the type of things we do, um, and we you know we donate to every high school in town. We donate um, to every food bank in town. We do everything we can um, all across the spectrums, and we got a lot of bang for our buck with that. So that that's really how we market. So it's a unique concept from that standpoint. We don't have mass marketing because we don't we we're too spread out geographically for it to make sense to do a TV campaign or anything. The yep. traditional media call would be more outdoor billboards and directionals, things of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love that. So one of the things that I think we skip over a lot in our industry, and this is, again, something I, I learned when I went back to school, because uh, I just thought, hey, we don't do this right. And then I went back and learned, oh, this is, yes, we don't. Um, this is how we can do it better. But like you said, which is, um, which is market selection, um, understanding that this wouldn't work in a whole bunch of markets simply because people would be confused. Uh, but for a small market at that size, this is exactly what they need because they, because of what they have available to them and all of that. So I, I love that because one of the things that I believe is that we have to ask that question of like, who needs something? Who needs something that we're uniquely qualified to provide? What is that thing? And what is then our solution? You create a more compelling solution than anything else out there. That's the beginning of marketing. That's the foundation beyond Absolutely. should we do billboards or TV or banner ads on on uh, Google or whatever we have to say who's our people what do they need let's create a solution to that and then let's figure out how to go tell them let's tell them that we've got a solution to the problem that we know they have uh, it's that first step that I think a lot of restaurants certainly a lot of independents just skip right over and it's something that I think we can get better at so I appreciate that unique perspective on not only just sort of how you create a concept, but where you put the concept. Like this is the this is the concept. It's not going to work everywhere, but it's going to work really well in this kind of market. Is that sort of your plan to continue expanding beyond just sort of like the the mountain and west and beyond? Yeah, I mean, our, our we're opening a restaurant next month in Great Falls, Montana, right? So um, the the core. Uh, Industry there is a military base. That's where they have a huge Air Force base, um, and all the business come. You know, all the whole community is built off that. We feel very safe. That's a that's a good area to be in. But we're uh, when we signed our lease, we were on the local news and we were on the papers. It was all under media. Just the fact that we signed a lease to come there was a very big deal, right? So we'll do great there, we believe. Um, and then our, our next one after that is North Platte, Nebraska, small town in Nebraska. You may never even heard of. Um, but uh, it draws people on the weekends from 60 miles away because that's where they go shopping. That's where they get their TVs or uh, or washer, dryer, things like that, and has a, a good hub and, and base there. We'll continue to do small towns like that, and I think we'll be very successful at it. Um, we're going to expand to South Dakota, North Dakota, hopefully next year as well. Um, Colorado, we'd like to expand more, but honestly, the um, the server wages, as they continue to 
plan to increase them, it really is a deterrent to open a new restaurant there. And it's that's not a uh, that's not a statement about politics. It's just the reality, right? It just so, you know people can argue whether it's right or wrong. I'm just saying it's from our perspective. It's really hard to make money. Pay you know in five years if you have to pay a server eighteen dollars an hour. No, hundred percent. Listen, I got a lot of clients in California right now. The minimum wage in the state of California is sixteen thirty. It's going up to sixteen eighty at the end of the year. Um, it's hard to get uh, a labor cost below thirty-seven to thirty-eight percent when everybody yep. in the room is making at least sixteen, you know, give or take about sixteen fifty an hour. It's it's really really difficult. I want to I want to go back to the marketing stuff, but I, I want to since you brought this up, yeah. I do want to I do want to talk about this because. The beauty of having a bunch of clients, so I run these mastermind groups, and the beauty of having some California um, representation there is that I believe it's sort of a model of what's coming for a lot of states. And so I say, you know, because everyone says, oh, man, I feel bad for these guys in California. It's like, time out, time out. There's a very good chance it's coming for you, too, because I don't know that there's the appetite, even states that are really uh, friendly towards small business, I don't know that there's an appetite for this tip credit, certainly not. There are states that still have this two thirteen an hour tip credit, and I don't know how much of an appetite there's going to be for that as just cost of living increases all over the country. Um, talk to me about how you think about that. I mean, you're cherry picking your markets now, um, as you just said. Where do you think this goes? I mean, is minimum wage just going to? Is this tip credit going to disappear across the board? Does this eventually lead to the end of a tipping culture? And so everyone just gets paid an hourly wage in hospitality. What do you think is coming there? Uh, personally, from what I've seen and when then my my uh, opinion is the tip credit is going to go away eventually everywhere or anywhere that matters, um, you know, where there's mass populations, you know, in states with less than a million people. I don't think I don't really mean it doesn't matter, but it won't have as large an impact. Right. But yep. you'll start seeing it more and more. And I think the way it gets offset is we'll already I'll say this just anecdotally, we'll see it in Colorado Springs where where everyone knows in this state that servers are getting a dollar. They're getting more and more and they're going all the way to, I think, eighteen dollars an hour. We're seeing their tip across the board. Their tips are less than all of our other locations. It's really Mm -hmm. fascinating. You can absolutely see that they're making less tips because people are like, why am I tipping you when you're making, you know, as much as everyone else? Um, right. so that's one thing. I think the other thing is we're starting to see it more and more and I loathe to personally do it, but I think everyone's going to do it. And this goes back to your saying earlier, I don't want to be first, but I'll sure be second is the people who are charging. I mean, I, I again, I don't want to name restaurants cause I don't want to look at it like it's a negative or po- it just is what it is, but I've been to some re- national brands lately. And I see that they have a separate line that they'll call something like health insurance for our staff or I don't know, some kind of fee yep. that. Two years ago, when I started seeing it randomly, I was like, there's no way that's going to work. And you're seeing it more and more. I still maybe only one out of every 20 times eating out, but it was one in 100. I mean, I think it's going to be, we're used to seeing hotels and airports and, you know, and airlines with all their fees. I think restaurants, that's the only way to survive. And I think it's a a death spiral. I really do. I do too. Because when you charge, okay, so dinner out for for a family is 100 bucks. And then we've got a, you know, state, you know, sales tax of six, seven, eight percent. Right. So that's let's say seven percent on top of that. And then we've got three percent for our credit card fee. And then we've got four percent for our employee health insurance fee. Right. I mean, what are we up there? We're up to about 14 percent. And then they're expected to tip 15 to 20 percent on top of that. So they're tipping anywhere between 
30, 35 percent, 40 percent. I mean, it's easy to see where that I think it's a death spiral that eventually yeah. I see it's just like, well, then we just have to absorb the cost or do it like they do in England, for example. Right. Where it's just they all get paid uh, a decent wage, but then there's a 10 percent uh, service charge that's put on there and it's distributed um, accordingly across everybody. Yeah, and I, there's going to be something to that effect. I mean, it's not in the next five years, but probably next 10 to 15. It's going to fundamentally change how how um, servers are paid, how staff is paid. And I think it's going to go all the way from QSR up, but particularly casual dining, fine dining, polished casual, however you want to call the different um, mm-hmm. segmentation. But I definitely see it. I mean, I had a credit card company call me the other day and say they can they can basically save me all these credit card fees. And usually it's, you know, you're like, okay, that's fine. I took the call and they're like, yeah, just charge $3, 3% to the customer. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I could have figured that one out. You know? Brilliant, dude. And that's, Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. now, the, lega- so, now I mean, the legality of that, now it's starting to get so, you know, there's all this with like Ticketmaster and stuff with, with the junk fees. And restaurants yeah. now are just at the wrong place at the wrong time because a lot of them now in a couple of states are getting sort of thrown into this of like there's yeah. all these fees that we didn't prepare for and we get our bill and we're like, no, no, no. The price, uh, price on the menu said, you know, sixteen dollars for my appetizer, you know, thirty dollars for my entree, and then, but now I got four percent and three percent, and the, the, you know, all of this. Um, there, these like hidden fees when you get the bill. Man, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like a good idea. That's the we want at the bill. They say, man, you want to get to that place where, you know, we've underpromised and overdelivered, and people say, man, that was yeah, okay, it's expensive, but like, but that was really good. That was really solid. I can't wait to come back. Yeah, and I think, and just la- final thing on this, I think traditionally when you think of like, uh, uh, you know, invoice transparency, bill transparency, whatever, I think the the restaurant business is like the most basic transaction, right? It's ten bucks yep. for burger and fries. It's $10 bucks, right? And I know whatever the tax is. And then now it's not as transparent as it should I agree. be. And that's probably going to change. Um, there's smarter people than me that are going to figure this out. But I think over the next 10, 15 years, there will be a fundamental change on how a a, a, a bill looks at the end of a meal um, and, and what people will accept, what they won't accept, and what markets. And, uh, and lastly, I think the credit card companies may have to come to the table and work with companies because um, to me, they're going to have to meet everyone halfway because that's just a charge people aren't going to – People accept it. Who knows? People may go to go back to cash because because the, the fee, they got to find a way. I know that's. I mean, I know we're not going to, but I'm saying is there's got to be something different because there, um, I agree. Knows? I agree. You know? I, at the end of the day, there there has to be a, there has to be a solution here. I just think it's an interesting conversation, yeah. which is why I appreciate you going there. And from an operator's perspective. Um, because you, you sort of juggle this all the time. So I, I did want to I did want to go in that little tangent. So let's go back now to the marketing conversation. So we sort of had yeah. that foundational conversation. One of the things that um, in the email exchange back and forth before we uh, sat down together today is we were talking about something that you guys really pride yourself on is sort of customer retention. Um, I talk a lot about like a, like a marketing triangle. So I just wrote a book. The book's coming out. And in the book, uh, is I talk about something I've talked about for a while, which is that I think for the most part, we could just have a three-page marketing plan. I think there are three things we have to focus on to have a successful restaurant, and that's really customer acquisition, customer retention, and what I call evangelism, right, is getting people to go spark word of mouth. So I want to drill down because I think what you guys were saying is that uh, it's a particular focus of yours is focusing on customer retention, right? The people are going to come in. You go to a new market. You're the new thing. But then how do you get them back, and how do you get them back frequently and um, – uh, and to become loyal. So how do you guys think about that? And what in particular are you guys doing um, in that area? Yeah, so um, 
You know, I think there's, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, the loyalty programs that everyone was doing was kind of new and unique. And now it's become just table stakes, right? Like everyone has some kind of loyalty program. When you get a receipt, it says join our loyalty program. You get an email, you get kind of the normal stuff. And we do that, right? Um, but we wanted to do something a little different. So especially after COVID in 2021, we noticed that one of the biggest um, issues we were having were there were just restaurants were not open seven days a week. Um, we were, but not a lot of places were. And and people were getting very frustrated. They just could not get a table, right? So we said, how can how can we possibly solve that? And what could we do? And how could we monetize it, right? Because we have anecdotally people coming in and offering hostesses $20, $50, $100 to get a table, which, you know, that's not unheard of, like, you know, in New York or LA or Vegas, but in, you know, Sheridan, Wyoming, it kind of is unheard of, right? It's just not right. normally what you can see. So, uh, so we started talking about it. So we came up with, this what we think is a pretty unique program that I think eventually people will go to. We talked about how can we do a membership based program where people pay every month to be a membership member and what could we give them that would make them feel they were getting the value for it. So we came up with what we call a royalty instead of loyalty program where people pay 50 bucks a month and they get a special card. Um, so number one is they get fifty dollars in gift cards back anyway. So to me, it's a it's really like at its core, it's a it's a gift card program. And, and almost everyone in this business does some kind of gift card program in Christmas time or holiday time that you know you get twenty percent back usually. And not everyone, but I mean across the board, there's some kind of level of something to that effect. Um, and we do that as well. So we said, hey, what if we give them the gift card? Then right now they're prepaying for their food for the month. We know they're going to come in at least once now. And our average ticket's almost ninety dollars, so we'll make up on that. And then we'll give them. Um, priority wait list. So if they don't have a reservation, obviously they can make a reservation. If they don't have a reservation and they come in, they get put on the top of the wait list. Um, so uh, the next table that's available, um, they get they get sat. Um, and then they get some other things like 10% off their meal, a birthday dinner, um, and we send them a set of really nice uh, steak knives when they join, right? A one-time purchase. And then beyond that, we've expanded that now to special dinners, focus groups, tastings, they get one-on-ones with um, with leadership uh, once a year if they want to come in and, and come to a meeting. They get put in um, uh, sweepstakes to win certain kind of prizes and, and different things like that during the holidays. Um, we send them personalized birthday cards and thank you notes and, and all of those things. So we basically took the reverse of using all the technology that everyone's using for loyalty, um, and then we brought it down to you know very basic, uh, low-tech, handwritten notes, a person they can call, they have a concierge number they can call if they have an issue or question. Um, and people absolutely love it. And they love the fact that it's a little bit of a step back from what everyone's used to, everything's online. And, and they can go online and check things as well. They can check their gift card balances and it's all populated electronically, but they still have Marisa who they can call if they have a question about their about their card or they wanna make a special dinner reservation or they have an anniversary coming up. They can still go to the stores, but they also have someone at our office that's dedicated to them um, five days a week where they can call or email her and she'll take care of their issues. So to us, it's been a phenomenal program. I mean, we've sold, uh, we thought we'd sell like 50 to 100 per restaurant. We're at over 150 per location. And now we're on a wait list at every location because we don't want to oversell it because of that wait list issue. Because if we have too many people going, coming in and saying, hey, I'm a royalty member, give me a table right now. It then defeats it kind that of loses exclusivity, it. yeah. Exactly. So we want, our goal is to expand it to, um, we're basically, our plan is to make all of them founding members, 
and then have yep. a different program for people where they don't have the wait list, but they get everything else. And then again, it's a gift card program. And um, and these small sounds, we're you know we're trying to grab market share, and that's how we're grabbing market share. We we've seen all of these members on average spend about twenty eight percent more. They tip about eighteen percent more. Um, the attrition on these is less than five percent. I mean, basically the only reason now we you know listen, we're in the restaurant business. We've had a couple you know. We've, we've dropped the ball a couple times. Stuff happens, right? But overall, the people, the reason that they're leaving the program is they're moving, right? They're, they're moving. They're like, it. there's not a ribbon near, near me. But it's less, the attrition is less than 5%. People see value, and they get that bill every month for $50 on their credit card. I mean, almost no one says, what am I getting for it? They all know. They're going to get yeah. a gift card, and they come in, and they're going to bring their friends. And they love the fact that a server, when we do it right, will come up and go, hey, I see you're a royalty member. And everyone looks around and go, what's that? How do I get that? A, I love it. A- so here's the best part. You brought up loyalty. And I think the way that we do loyalty right now is largely very lazy because we say, yeah, oh, I'm with this. And they've got a loyalty program. Oh, so we'll just do that. Okay, we can yep. check that. We can check that off the box. That you guys went the extra mile. I love this program as you're outlining. And I hope the listeners are hearing this. Here's the beauty part of this program. Here's the beauty part of this uh, this podcast, I mean, is that like we steal ideas, we take ideas and we adapt them and adopt them for our own purposes. And it doesn't lessen what you guys are doing. Um, I think it just no, helps no. It just helps us breed um, a greater connection with uh, with all of our guests. Um, I-, I love it. Everything you just laid out. I love it. I had never thought in terms of that. And I'm sure it took more legwork on your on your end. But um, to your point. It's now what 150 times 50 dollars. That's that's real revenue that you're generating, and real value for oh, them because yeah. they they get it back. I love it. Yeah, I mean our our normal, you know, I'll be transparent. Like our normal gift card program for December, we sell about a million dollars of gift cards, and we're over a million dollars in this program. So we doubled our gift card program, and we had to put some work into it, but we're not giving 20 percent back. So definitely a lot less than the 20 percent we normally give in the Christmas time. Yep. And then we think we could expand this. And my goal, like aspirationally, again, we have uh, we have to get everyone on board, just me personally, and we work in consensus, um, is to stop our loyalty program altogether. And just that this is the only way you can be a, one of our members is you buy our gift card program. But we, we may have it. it as a, 20, a $25 entry level all the way to $250 a month for corporate because we're in small towns where you have the local – you know, law firm that has clients they want to take out. And if we're their member, they're going to say, hey, go there because we're getting percentage off. We already have the gift card. Yep. Make us look yep. special. All of those things. So I would like to see our, from, from my perspective, I think taking loyalty back a step and having a person on the phone people can talk to and kind of, and being different than how many points do I have and do I get a free appetizer or can I afford a glass yeah. of wine or a burger? Neck? I just think everyone does that and we should be different. And that's how you stand out. Um, but your point of stealing ideas, I mean, I looked at it as, you know, um, fast casuals doing it. Um, you know, almost everyone's doing it. Not everyone I shouldn't say, but in all industries, people are trying to find a way to get monthly memberships in revenue. And we said, let's take that model. How do we make it? Um, and uh, anyway, that's where it came from. It was a group effort. And so far, it's been usually hugely successful and we want to expand it. I love it. And I appreciate you sharing that here on the show. I think um, the best part about this is that uh, hopefully it will spark ideas with the listeners. So as you guys are listening to this, you go, oh, that sounds cool. Hey, we can, uh, you know, 
work in some aspect of that. I mean, the best the, the best conversations we have here um, are just meant to spark other ideas uh, for the listeners. What else? What else do you guys do in particular to to really focus on uh, customer retention? I can see how that would be a hugely successful way to do it. What else have you guys done? What else? What other sort of strategies or tactics can you share? Yeah, so we have a special equations program where you come in for your um, birthday or anniversary or anything, and we'll um, we take a picture and we put it in a frame and we give it to you, and everyone signs in. It. It's like a card, and it seems like a small thing, but you we'd be shocked how many people come up to me almost every time in a restaurant and let me know um, that they have ten of these for the past ten years for their birthday or anniversary on their refrigerator or in their house. They just love it. So those are very small things you can do. We do, you know, some people do the. The birthday song when someone has a birthday i think overall that's a little overplayed and it can annoy the rest of the restaurant you know just again my own personal opinion um but something like that still allows them to say it's special plus you know we give them a dessert obviously whatever but that's something special we do we also again being that we work on a spectrum from we're kid friendly all the way to you can buy you know a bottle of silver oak in our restaurant and and uh and you can spend a lot of money um when you with a child, we automatically, um, anyone uh, younger than 10, um, you know, again, we're eyeballing, but generally servers are a pretty good idea. We go and we have an apple in the back. We bring the table uh, plate with an apple and some yogurt for the kid without anyone asking, because we all know when you have young kids and the kid's hungry, kind of ru- can ruin the meal for everybody. So that yeah, feeds the sure. kid right away before they get drink orders or anything. And the families are just like so thankful, so appreciative, and lets them take take a beat order their food and everything else can kind of work out. And uh, and then they know if they need a second apple, we're happy to get it for them as well. But it's one of those things we don't charge for it. We just kind of, it's an extra uh, piece of uh, uh, hospitality that we add and, and people really, really appreciate it and enjoy it. And they just know that we, we recognize, you know, being a parent of a young child, taking them out to dinner can be, you know, it should be a fun day, but sometimes it'd be challenging and we're trying yeah. to make it less challenging. That's all. I love and, it. By, and we're doing it without saying all of that. We're just bringing them yep. an apple. And that yep. says all of it without using those words. So. Yep. Yep. I, I, so I love it. it. The key to everything you just said, everything you've been saying this last little while, is it's not hard. It just forces yeah. you to step back and say, hey, what are we trying to accomplish? I always say, so I work with my mastermind members, right? It's like, what are we trying to achieve, right? So what's the goal? Yeah. And then what can we do to achieve the goal? It, it, when we boil it down to the simplest parts there. It's like, what do we want to do? Hey, we want to get people to come back more frequently. How can we do that? And you come up with a program, right? Like, hey, what do we do? I want people yep. to feel comfortable with kids. How do, how do we do that? Well, we make sure that the kids are comfortable and taken care of. Like, that's huge. I've been to places, I always say, we, we went to Paris a couple of years ago, and it resonates with me because we took, uh, we wanted to go out to a really nice meal. We were there over the holidays, and we were there dining with a four-year-old. And they brought my son a bag of candy, but like little uh, gummies and chocolates that they had made in the back and in a little bag with a big ripe, uh, bright red balloon attached to it. And they brought it to him. And man, like, that's it. That kid just tugged on the balloon and played with the balloon and ate the candy. And like, so anytime he would flag, we were like, here, do you want more candy? Like, they know, like, yeah, maybe I don't want to feed my kid candy the entire meal most nights of the week. But they understood. We were at a nice restaurant for a fancy, you know, at a on a holiday. Yeah. Like, like this is what we can do. Like, it took so little. Like, candy in a balloon. There's every restaurant who's listening to this can bring their kids candy in a balloon. It's like the coloring pages, right? Like, everyone brings kids uh, coloring page and crayons. How can you go above and beyond? How can you make that a better touch than what it is? Everyone does loyalty. Everyone does a coloring page and the three crayons that aren't even that good. So how can you do something better? We were at a place that used to give Play-Doh. 
it was like awesome. Like, like, let me just tell you, coloring pages kids work with for about five to seven minutes. Play-Doh, they'll do go for like 20, 25 minutes. It just, and largely because that doesn't really happen. It's just, uh, you know, there was one place that did, um, that would make like the dough Play-Doh, you know, out of like pizza dough. And then they would fire yeah. it in the oven. If they put it all the way back, they'd fire it and it would like cook so that they could take it with them, almost, you know, treating the pizza oven like a kiln. There's so many different ways of doing it. It just requires you to think outside the box. I love it. Yeah, and we mostly usually have the stuff already in the restaurants. It's not like this is not, you know. And uh, for people with small children, you they appreciate it. They recognize it. And if you're late on the rest of their food, they're like, it's okay. Not 100%. always, but I mean, they, they give you so much more grace when they know you took care of the first part, which is make my kid give me a break. So me and my husband, me and my uh, friend, me and my whatever, you know, uh, yep. or if you're by yourself, can I just get a brief and enjoy my meal? You know, I'm tired of cooking at home or whatever it may be. So, There's anyway. nothing better. So dining out with a young child, my son's now eight, dining out when he was young, there was nothing better than 20 minutes of peace at the beginning where we could just sit and have like a beer or sit and have a cocktail yep. while we were deciding what we ordered. So we didn't feel like we had to sit down, order food, get it really quickly, shove it down. But just 20 minutes on like a Friday afternoon when we picked him up from daycare to just relax, like at five o'clock, like let's just take a yep. beat here. A hundred percent. But now you're talking about empathy. Now you're talking about putting yourself in the shoes of your customers. Yep. How can you solve a key problem they have? It goes back to what I was saying a little while ago, right? Who has a problem that we're uniquely qualified to solve? People need somewhere to go, but they've got kids. They don't necessarily want to get a babysitter. They so they want to go out with the kids. But how do we make that an enjoyable experience? You can answer that. You can answer that problem, but you have to first acknowledge the problem before you can craft a solution to it. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I, to I I totally agree, and I think that's um, that's everyone can take something from that. So. For sure. Listen, uh, the power of this, uh, the power of this podcast is how we can connect leaders to other leaders and the fact that good ideas can come from anywhere. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to chat with me and to share some of what you guys are doing and to share some of your story. I know that was uh, maybe not what you were prepared to do, but uh, but I think it's um, helpful for other people to hear because I think a lot of people took the side door and the back door into this industry. It's not necessarily the, it's not a career path. Like when you go become a doctor, you got to go and you got to be a doctor and you got to go to med school and residency and your fellowship and all of that. Um, this is a little bit more of a winding path. And so I appreciate you sharing yours. Um, tell me real quick, where can people go to learn more about uh, everything you guys are up to? Uh, you know, obviously on our website, uh, ribbonchophouse.com, finally restaurantgroup.com. And, uh, you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and all that. But uh, if you're, you know, traveling through Montana this summer, there's still a little bit summer left. And and you're in uh, Montana, Wyoming, visiting Yellowstone. We'd love to have you come in one of our restaurants and feel free to reach out and uh, we'll give you the VIP experience. Um, but uh, no, Chip, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me on. And this has been a fun conversation. And uh, yeah, I always enjoy talking business and talking. Uh, the restaurant business is just so so challenging, but also so fun and so rewarding. It's uh, it's a great place to be, and I couldn't have been happier with my decision, uh, you know, 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think we can just, uh, if we just make it a little bit easier to make money and make it a little bit, you know, I think we can put up with the challenges because what we do is so special, what we do is extraordinary. But if we could just, uh, we just make a little bit more money doing it, make it a little bit more profitable, I think a lot more people would enjoy doing it. And I think we'd, uh, we'd give people a lot of peace of mind. Um, I appreciate, again, uh, you taking the time, you sharing your, uh, your, uh, journey, you sharing some of the strategies and tactics that are keeping you guys so successful. Appreciate it. We're going to include all the links in the show notes. I uh, appreciate you being here. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, great. Thanks, Chip. Appreciate it. Have a good one. 
So once again, I want to thank Jerome for taking time out of his day to sit and chat with us. All of the links are in the show notes. I hope you got some value here. I'm going to leave you with one final request. Again, my book, The Restaurant Marketing Mindset, comes out October 3rd. We've got a special pre-sale package available now for all of you listeners of the show. The first 200 people get this special package, an invite to a special launch day celebration. Visit therestaurantmarketingmindset.com. Pre-order your copy now, and you'll get it in advance of everyone else. I appreciate you being here, and I will see you next time.